A warm welcome to all our listeners. This is Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. We have previously concentrated on our research about anti-Semitism in Hungary. We have completed this research and published a two-volume set of books on the subject titled Anti-Semitism in Hungary, Appearance and Reality. In our current research titled The Text on Christian Communities and Institutions, we are undertaking fieldwork in a number of countries in the EU, Middle East and Africa. Our research in Poland was completed and we traveled to Iraqi Kurdistan at the end of March. We next plan to do research in Jordan, Jerusalem and the West Bank. This podcast is part of our new series focused on the Middle East. Today, on the 26th of January 2024, we have the pleasure of speaking with Amir Avivi, who is a Brigadier General retired from the Israeli Defense Forces. During his service, General Avivi held a series of senior roles in the IDF. He was the Deputy Division Commander of the Gaza Strip, Deputy Comptroller of the Security Forces, Director of the Office of the Chief of Staff, Commander of the Sagi Division, Commander of the Battalion 605, and Commander of the School of Combat Engineering. General Avivi is also the founder and chairman of IDSF. Previously, we had two podcast discussions with Eli Pieps, the director of the International Relations of IDSF, and Dori Sakar, the head of the research department of IDSF. These podcasts are available on the Danube Institute website. My name is Sharon Sugar. I am a researcher at the Danube Institute. Let me introduce my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a Distinguished Fellow at the Danube Institute, and Iboya Lubitsky, a researcher at the Danube Institute. Thank you so much for joining us, General Avivi. Thank you. It's a pleasure. My first question would be that can you tell our listeners about your own background and your decision to become a career officer in the IDF? Well, in my background, I come from a family that has been living in Jerusalem for 15 generations. My family... Originally came from Spain. They moved to Saloniki and in sixteen twenty arrived to Jerusalem. I was born in Jerusalem but spent most of my young life uh, moving with my parents from country to country. My father was a diplomat uh, fifty one years and uh, eventually became Israel's ambassador in uh, Colombia, Chile and Turkey. Uh, so until the age of eighteen, I lived only three years in Israel. I spent overall five years in Italy. Five years in South America, Chile and Argentina, and three years in Ivory Coast. And um, I graduated uh, from a British high school in Rome in 87 and went back to Israel. Still as a lone soldier, but my parents were still uh, uh, in Rome. I joined the Israeli Defense Forces in 87 and uh, went to officer's course. I became a platoon commander and later on a company commander. And I really liked uh, commanding, I liked leadership, and, and then I decided to pursue a military career, which uh, went on for 30 years, mostly in the combat engineers, but also commanding the Egyptian border and the deputy division commander of Gaza Strip. You come from a family whose background was centered in Mapai, which for our listeners was a left-wing party of David Ben-Gurion. Can you talk about this background and the influence that Ben-Gurion had on your own ideas on life? Yeah, so definitely I, I come from a family that was rooted in, a, I would say, the Labour Party, Mapai, but um, original Mapai, I always say, was more right-wing than the right-wing today in Israel. 
um, very uh, rooted uh, ideological uh, movement uh, that understood very well what we're dealing with, talking about our enemies, understood the importance of settling the land, of the connection to our heritage and history, to the Bible, um, very practical uh, people, um, understanding that we need to be able to defend ourselves by ourselves, uh, putting Israel's interest at the top of the list. We saw Ben-Gurion, although it was a very, very still young, weak and small country, standing um, very strongly uh, against uh, the American administration when they wanted the Israel to withdraw from the Negev and the Galil after the independence war. Even at the cost of being boycotted, he was a very, very brave uh, man with a lot of leadership. And this is something that always was an, an inspiration uh, to me. Um, I think that um, as the years went by, I saw it even in my own family, uh, this uh, very strong Zionist uh, ideology was replaced in Israel, uh, in many parts of the left, uh, with other agendas. But I personally remain the same uh, Ben-Gurionist with the same basic Zionist values as it was uh, at the beginning of uh, the State of Israel. Yeah, Ben-Gurion was an interesting figure in that he is considered to be left-wing outside of Israel, but he was very much in favor of settlement. In 67, he was one of the very strong voices about not giving up the land. Have you, do you think that that ultimately was an error, that maybe it would have been better for Israel to withdraw to the 48 borders and find some kind of an accord with the Palestinians and the Arab world? Well, I think that, uh, you know, people would like to talk about a lot about solutions. And uh, I myself, I like to pursue solutions. But uh, I always tell people that you cannot start talking about solutions if you don't agree on the problem. We don't seem to be defining what the problem exactly is. And I think that the problem uh, at the end of the day is uh, that our enemies really, really ideologically want to eradicate us. They're not looking for some kind of uh, settlement. It's not about land. It's about them... Uh, viewing us as, as, as foreigners or who are occupying a land that is not ours and that need to withdraw complete, completely from everywhere. They talk about uh, from the river to the sea. In this scenario, the Jews are in, in the sea. Um, and they think there's a really uh, big fight uh, over the land of Israel. And what I ask myself in my movement and organization, what we're dealing with is the big, biggest question of all. What is needed to secure Israel from two, four generations to come? And we need to be able to really outline what is needed for Israel to be secure for the very long future. And only based on that, we can start discussing a solution that actually adhere with this uh, needs, basic need of Israel and the Jewish people. You have this reputation, I've heard, from speaking to other Israelis, both in the military and in civilian life, of, as you've just um, outlined, you have somebody, you have an unusual vision, creativity, you look for solutions. 
but military organizations tend to be the opposite. They look to manage problems and not find solutions to them. Um, did you find this tension when you were in the in the command in the command of the one of the command circles of the IDF that there was this lack of vision or conservatism or simply a resistance to change within the within the organization itself? Well, you know, I think that because of my unusual upbringing, uh, the fact that I moved every two and a half, three years constantly as a young uh, kid from country to country, from culture, different schools, different languages. Uh, in this uh, kind of upbringing, you really need to be able to adapt very fast to really big changes and become creative, creative and resourceful and think out of the box. You cannot get stuck, uh, and especially with so many changes. And um, I think this is maybe why uh, it comes to me natural to really be able to adapt fast to, to different situations and also be very open-minded and think out of the box. And definitely I've seen in the army, uh, there is a lot of uh, conservatism, definitely very, very hard for people to change. Yeah, I remember already as a very young major, um, I was asked before I went to a long course by the commander of the Corps of uh, Combat Engineers to um, look at the work they did, looking at how the combat engineers will look 20 years later, something that is visionary. And I remember reading the paper that, that was written by many high-ranking uh, officers that I was surprised to see how little creativity I found there and now they couldn't see really the big picture and the big changes uh, and, and the evolution uh, of uh, the core. And then I sat as a major and, and wrote a long, long-term vision um, for the Combat Engineer Corps. Um, part of it was adopted, a big part of it was adopted a year later, but there were things I saw like 20 years ahead that took me maybe 15 years to really implement and convince that they are needed and only after a very long time the, the understanding was clear to everybody. What, what I saw immediately as a very young officer so definitely this is one issue. The other issue which really bothers me is that the really big questions about Israel's future are not really in the, in the domain of the, the army. For example, um, what will be um, long-term defensible borders of Israel? Um, and what, what I'm worried about is that I know, for example, that if Israel will, will, will withdraw from the Jordan Valley in Judea and Samaria, eh, the army will not be able to defend Israel at all. But the army won't say that. The army won't say, I'm not able to defend Israel along these lines. It will say, this is the political issues. We are not part of this discussion. So the army itself is not professionally setting a clear uh, vision uh, of national security 
and really giving these inputs to decision makers because they're saying, you know, this is politics, it's not us. And so in, in this reality, you need an organization that will do that, that will actually say what is viable, what is not viable, what is needed to secure Israel uh, for the long term because the army is not doing that. And we are feeling today, IDSF, Israel's Defense and Security Forum, we are feeling this void today in the Israeli society. Is this void, let me get in one more back up, is the void um, simply because the army will, is conservative and is ever is averse to politics, or is it also because of the failure of Israeli politics and Israeli political institutions? Probably a combination. And I think that Alain Ben-Gurion was a visionary man. I don't see today in Israeli politics uh, visionaries, a clear vision um, that is really shared also with the the society. I mean, when I when I talk with the Prime Minister Netanyahu, he is maybe one of the fewest people who actually thinks in a visionary way, but it doesn't really discuss these issues in depth with the society. Society is not part of this uh, discussion. And um, this is why I thought that uh, there is the need of a grassroots movement like us, combination of a grassroots movement and the think tank in order to really, really share these uh, issues with the society and do it in a way that they can understand put it in words and, and package it in, in a way that they, they, you, you simplify it to the society and get them to really understand what are the core issues and why we should move a certain uh, way in order to create a prosperous and secure uh, state for Israel. Can you describe how and why the IDSF Habitachonist team was founded? Well, there were two things in my long uh, military career that really impacted me and gave me the understanding that I need to to start a new movement, an organization that deals with security. One was when I was a battalion commander. I commanded uh, 800 soldiers uh, in Operation Defensive Shield in the West Bank, Judean Samaria. And this was the very first fighting. We fought for 10 months, day and night, day and night, against the suicide bombers who were trying to carry out attacks. Each attack like that was devastating, so we were really under a lot of pressure to completely avoid any terror attack and any suicide bomber to infiltrate uh, into Israel and carry out the attack. And after 10 months, the command told us, you have three weeks to organize. You are going back to 10 months more. And this was really hard for the soldiers. And I took all my soldiers to talk with them. And as I was uh, talking to them, I found myself asking them a very strange question. How many of you have ever in your life been in Jerusalem? And I found out that half of my battalion has never been in Jerusalem. And I asked those who actually have been in Jerusalem, how many of them have been in the Wailing Wall, in the Kotel? And half of them have never been in the most sacred place for Jewish people. And I was really, really surprised, and I felt that 
my battalion, you know, great soldiers, but they, they don't really know what they're fighting for. They lack spirit. And uh, although I had only three weeks, I decided to give up a week of training and take them to Jerusalem for a whole week. And uh, we really went to the most important places connected to our history and heritage. The times of King David, King Solomon, and the Temple Mount, and the old city. We also went to the Knesset. And in the last day, 800 soldiers sat at the president's house in Jerusalem and spoke with the president of Israel. And I can say that when we went back to the battlefield, this was a completely different battalion, full of spirit, really, really uh, resolute. And um, they excelled in combat to such an extent that after a few months, the chief of staff, Moshe Bugi Alon, asked to meet with me and really to understand what's going on with this battalion, how come they're performing such well. And so well, so I told him the story and uh, he was very, very impressed. And following that, I was appointed aide-de-camp of the chief of general staff after two years of uh, commanding my battalion. So the first thing that really impacted me is the understanding that uh, in the Israeli education, especially in the more secular schools, the education system has distanced itself from core Zionist values, from really connection to who we are as a nation, from patriotism, and the education became very, very technical. And this is a huge danger in the Israeli society because our enemies are building a narrative. It might be a completely false one, but they are building nationalism. They are building a narrative. And if you don't really build a society that has a sense of rightness, and it's connected to its values, it's very, very hard then to mobilize the society for a long time to be willing to fight, to defend the country, because the language is that tough. So th this is one thing that really impacted me, and I followed for many years the way that their uh, soldiers are educated and focused on really building their uh, sense of rightness and connection to the land and to the people. Uh, the other thing was that when I was uh, in the office of the chief of staff, and at the time fighting was still hard in uh, in the West Bank, but they were, we were after Operation Defensive Shield and things were stabilizing. But in Gaza, it was a huge mess. Uh, we lost control of Gaza following Oslo, and um, there was the uh, explosive tunnels and rockets and and the anti-tank missiles and attacks on, on the Jewish towns. And this is all prior to the disengagement. This is Oslo doing. Just by retreating from the cities, we lost completely control. And the Agada went from the Stone Age to shooting rockets in seven years and all this under the Palestinian Authority. And in this reality, one day, uh, the chief of staff and I here on TV that the, the, the Prime Minister, Sharon, decided to pull out of Gaza, disengage. A decision was, that was, there was no consultation with the security apparatus, not with the chief of staff. It was a decision that was completely disconnected from any reality or any reasoning. And uh, 
as the aide-de-camp of the chief of general staff, I saw this terrible decision-making. I participated in the cabinet meeting where the chief of staff and the head of the Shin Bet told the prime minister that if he goes on with this plan, Gaza in one year will become, as they said, Hamastan, Al-Qaedastan, and Hezbollah-Stan. And although they said that, the Prime Minister continued with his plans very fast. The IDF aligned also, uh, because we found ourselves leaving office and another Chief of Staff uh, was elected. And I saw all these retired generals uh, praising this disengagement, saying it would bring peace, and I knew it was all a lie. And um, this really impacted me and, and I felt like a sense of uh, real danger. And I said to myself, if this is the way decision-making is done and there is no voice that is really able to um, balance, take, give a reasoning, say, say exactly what this means, um, Israel might take devastating decisions in the future. And this is what motivated me after I retired to build IDSF and really create a movement and a very strong voice in the Israeli society, in the media, the social media research, um, that will really set the needs to secure Israel for the long term. Oh, thank you. That was uh, it was a very complete answer, and we actually have questions on just about every part of it. But let me go back to the very beginning. Something that fascinates me um, as an outsider, as a non-Israeli, that your motivation of your troops by going to holy places, by going to things identified with you know, with Jewish culture and the Jewish faith, um, Jewish history, it seems to be something quite, is it something that is integral to Israeli identity? Because in every other, certainly Western country, you would motivate your team by by taking them to patriotic sites, to things that are in the, something that is sacred to the nation and as opposed to a religion or a faith or a biblical heritage. It seems something different. Where does Israel, where does loyalty, where does patriotism and loyalty to the state come in and will it ever, does it in some way supersede? this um, religious identification? Well, Jewish religion is not similar to Christian or Muslim religion. And Jewish, the Jews, Jews are a nation. Judaism is a unique peoplehood, unique nationalism, and there is a connection between our history, our heritage, our religion. It's all the same. It's, it's one one uh, one thing, and um, therefore, you know, the Bible does religious aspects, but it's also our history book. All our history is written uh, in the Bible. It's true that uh, also Christians and even Muslims uh, use the Old Testament, but for Jews, this is our history. And our history, our heritage, um, every single place in the land of Israel is spoken in the Bible. All our historic events are there. Um, 
So you say it uh, also in the army. I mean, you cannot disconnect Judaism from uh, nationalism, from patriotism. It's the same. It's one thing. Fascinating. Can I ask one other, simply um, more technical question, and then we'll go to the the things we really had here. In looking at the membership of the ISDF, you have or the IDSF. I'm sorry, you have a lot of. Um, members, it's very large, and yet you come from such a, di a, a diverse group of services. Um, it's, it, it fascinates me because it would indicate that the, unlike say the United States, where there's a strong inter-service rivalry, and a strong rivalry between intelligence agencies and the like, so that organizations tend to reflect one group. Yours seems to be so diverse. Is it because your ideas are very widespread and that there's dissatisfaction with the structure of the institutions and a need to find solutions and changes? So I think that, you know, when, when you are in the service, in regular service, you might say, you know, there is units pride and, you know, we are better than the Air Force, the Air Force is better than the Navy. This is while you are serving, maybe you have this a bit. But after service, it's really about the overall ideology. And um, today, for many years, you have a group of high-ranking officers that believe that the most important thing, the most sacred thing, the only thing we should care about is peace at any cost. And they're willing to pay any cost to buy some paper that time peace. And it's almost a religion, even messianic, I would say, because really kind of a culture that completely disregards reality and, and just wants uh, to, to get some kind of peace. And they are willing to do retreats which would endanger Israel existentially. They don't view Tattling the land is something important, and they are not and mostly connected to our Jewish heritage and history. They are like, look at more like, talk about more about, uh, you know, a modern, non global democratic state. And it, it, it's, a, I would say, an old generation, um, mostly emanating from the Israeli left, the kibbutzim. And um, that has, and, and has undergone a process uh, that really disconnects from, I would say, even disconnects from core Zionist values. Where, 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 where you, you can see this phenomena very clearly that, for example, many of these officers in the last year were in favor of insubordination. In, in, they politicized the army. Now, they were very upset about the uh, judicial reform. And it's okay, you know, you can like the reform or not like the reform, but be willing to endanger Israel's existence and security to fight some judicial reform. It, it's unbelievable. I mean, something that I cannot comprehend. And one of the things I ask myself is, why is it that they are thinking about insubordination, and we, 
so many officers and commanders, no matter what will happen, even if the government will do the worst thing that, that we can imagine, we will never fight this by endangering our country. We will never subordinate. We will never politicize the army. And I ask myself, why, why, why is it? Why are we different? So many people and yet so different. And we came from the same unit, the same service. And it's really, I think it's really about what is the basic motivation. And I think that in, in our group, we are motivated by love, by deep, deep love to the people of Israel, to the state of Israel, to our heritage, to our history. And we feel responsible for the whole society, all of it. We love all, all, all the society, all of them. Um, and there is a group that is like an elite group that um, is really disconnected and disconnected from parts of the society. They don't only, not only disconnected, they hate them. It might be they hate Haredim or they hate religious Zionists. Uh, and the motivation is hate. They might be hate the prime minister. Or other politicians, and when you are motivated by hate, this really shifts you from really taking good decisions for the state of Israel, and and also I would say it's a group that is really really believe that if we just retreat, we just give them what what they want, that peace will erupt and forever. There are many, many, many officers who think, think otherwise. I had the opportunity um, to attend uh, and observe some of the demonstrations on judicial reform, both the large ones in um, Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, and did meet military officers there who were not in uniform. But their view was um, really almost a mirror image of what you're saying, that they are fighting hate, that they feel that they can't in good conscience serve a country that they believe is no longer democratic, which they define in very Western terms. But and it's something you start to hear in the United States, too, if, a, if Trump is reelected, that can you serve a country or a system that you no longer recognize as the foundational dream of the United States or the foundational dream of, of Israel to create a viable democratic state? Is, is there a, in other words, hate seems to be not the exclusive province of one side or the other because you hear it from the, the Haredim are not loving towards those who are not religious and religious Zionists can go quite far. You need to really set the boundaries of the democratic game. You don't destroy the army to promote an idea. And I think that they crossed every red line that's imaginable and something that we really disagree to. And uh, I myself, I have a problem with people who don't like, let's say, some process and in order to fight it, 
they make it seem as if it's the end of democracy or I don't know. People take things to the extreme. I think it's very, very dangerous. And not every decision is the end of democracy or the end of Judaism or the end of Zionism. Well, we need to really be able to conduct a more serious uh, discussion and uh, be willing to accept other views and play according to democratic rules. And I think that this, some of these demonstrations crossed very big red lines. And this is something that to me is not democratic at all. In one of the introductory videos of IDSF, as you already touched on it, a very strong connection was made between Zionism, Israeli identity and security. To quote from your website, the IDSF defined themselves as a Zionist security-based movement whose aim is to position Israel's security as a top national priority in a manner which ensures the sovereignty of the Jewish people in their homeland for generations to come. Can you explain to our listeners how deeply Zionism is imbued in the Israeli society, security, and indeed in identity? Well, we say that national security is first and foremost about national values. You are not a patriot if you're not connected to your heritage in history to Zionism. There is no tank and no airplane that can help you. It's really, first of all, about spirit. It's about a sense of rightness. This is the most important aspect you need to win wars and uh, have the willingness to defend your country. We even, hear, we even hear it now from the soldiers that are fighting in Gaza. When you ask them what, what's the most important thing you have, they say spirit. We are united, we are resolute, we know that we are the, the, uh, the right side, that we are doing the right thing. This is the most important thing. Then it's about tactics, munitions, capabilities, and so on. But what, what makes Israel win also in this war in Gaza, it's the spirit of the soldiers. And this spirit is what is supposed to unite the whole people of Israel. Once you lose this uh, very clear vision, then you see the society starting to shift and have big discussions without having a root connection that connects uh, everybody. We are all here, all of us, on the Jewish people, for one reason, to, to build a national home from the Jewish people in the land of Israel. That's it. This is what is common to all of us. No matter how religious or less religious we are, or if we live in the north, the south, or the east, and this is what connects us, connects us all. And um, I always say that, you know, as a, as a Jewish nation, we were expelled from our lands, depends on who count it, but between two and four, two to four times. So the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Muslims, we had several occasions where the Jews were expelled from the land. We spent 2,000 years the diaspora, persecuted, thrown from one place to another. Holocaust, six million Jews were slaughtered and put in gas chambers. And I think really the biggest question of all, once we managed to found our state again, is that we make sure it doesn't happen again. 
I don't think there is any other thing that is more important for the Jewish people than defining the way they will be secure and prosperous for generations to come. And it won't happen by putting our security and future in the hands of our enemies or the international community. The most basic Zionistic value is the Jews being able to defend themselves by themselves, being sovereign, being strong, and being able to develop their country and looking really at the very long future. And to close this segment, seeing the seeing the way the world has largely turned its back on Israel after in the wake of the act of the operations in Gaza, does that confirm your view that that Israel must really be able to stand alone because it can't rely on the outside world? I believe that there is a big connection between being strong and prosperous and having good international relations. Um, I think that the most important aspect in uh, in the international relations is being strong and relevant. And when you are strong, then um, countries want to have a good relationship with you. We see, it, for example, in the Abraham Accords, the reason why the Arab countries wanted a relationship with Israel because U.S. was becoming less dominant in the Middle East, and they felt that if they have to counter Iran, and they have a strong partner like Israel, and should ally themselves with Israel, and then all other things were put aside, and we made peace. With the U.S., for example, uh, from 48 all the way to 67, most of the time the U.S. was boycotting Israel. We didn't have good relations. What made the U.S. change completely the policy was the Six-Day War. When they saw how decisively Israel won and how big Israel became, then they said, okay, this country is actually interesting. Maybe you should do business with that. So this is how we became good friends with the U.S. And now there are generals that are saying, no, if we become weak, and withdraw and endanger ourselves, they like us. No, it doesn't work like that. It's the opposite. You want to be relevant, be strong, be prosperous, have advanced technology, have something to offer the world. Because international relations, it's all about real interests, much more than common values. And I believe in interests, in real politics. Thank you so much, General Avivi, for taking time and being here with us and answering all our questions. Stay tuned for the continuation of our discussion with General Avivi.